0: I pray that Yahweh blesses His Word to our hearts today. We're going to begin by quoting John 1, verse 1 from the James Moffat 1922 translation of the Bible. And it says that the Logos existed in the very beginning. The Logos was with God, and the Logos was divine. Today, what I'm going to attempt to do is just answer one clip from Torah Resource Radio's The Rob and Caleb Show, that focuses on a concept in John chapter 1. We've been going through this show for the past several weeks, and today we're going to focus on John 1. Not all of it, but a good portion of it. John chapter 1 is sometimes called the prologue to John's gospel, and it often comes up in discussions about who Yeshua is, and rightfully so. A popular verse in the prologue of John is John 1.14 where we read in the HCSB, The Word became flesh and took up residence among us and we observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So verse 14 then is undeniably a reference to Yeshua. And notice that it calls Him the one and only Son from the Father. Other translations, like the King James Version, read this as the only begotten of the Father, which is fine. Thus, John 1, verses 1 all the way through verse 18, is a text that needs to be discussed when we're discussing who Yeshua is. Now, before we look at the video clip today, I want to remind you of something that I covered a few sermons back in this series. Caleb Hegg, read a portion of a book that I co-authored titled, Who Then Is This? And then he briefly went over my understanding and John Cordero, my co-author's understanding, of portions of John 1. It was on page 42 of the book. And what we did is we just quoted John 1, 1 through 5. And then we stated the following. John and I wrote this, quote, Aside from the obvious problems of how to translate God, we have a problem of how to understand the Word. Since verse 14 says, and the word was made flesh, and since Revelation 19.13 says, Yeshua will be called the word of Yahweh, the translators imposed their own understanding into the translation. They understood the word to refer to Yeshua, therefore having to translate the Greek word autu into English as him. According to the Greek lexicon of Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, word is a translation of the Greek word logos, meaning something said including the thought. It refers to Yahweh's spoken word, not to a person who is called the word. Yahweh's word is an it, not a him. Verse 3 should read, All things were made through it, and without it was not anything made that was made. That is how it is translated in the emphatic Diaglot as well as in several other English translations that preceded the King James Version. End of quote. Now, how a person interprets... John chapter 1, 1 through 18 is going to depend largely on their understanding of the Greek word logos, translated as word in our English Bibles. Now word, the word word, is a legitimate translation of logos because logos in Greek often refers to speech, utterance, a message, etc. Something that is proclaimed. I touched on a couple of, maybe three uses of the word Logos in the New Testament a few sermons ago. However, most translations capitalize the W in Word in John 1.1. 1, 1. And they do this because they believe that the Logos, the Word, is the pre-existing Yeshua in heaven before he comes down to earth. They view the Word in John 1.1 1, 1 as a person, not as the utterance of Yahweh. And the capitalization of the W in word is a translation bias on the part of the translators who believe this way. Never fool yourself, and I speak to me just as much, into believing that translations are without bias. If I was scholarly enough, which I'm not, to make a translation of Scripture, it would be biased towards, for instance, pro-Torah. I would translate pro-law because I believe in the law of Yahweh. Well, men have their beliefs and the doctrines that they hold to. And when they translate the Bible, bias comes out. Sometimes the bias is correct, sometimes it's incorrect. Sometimes it's purposeful, sometimes it's done maybe without intention. But it's done because we all have our biases. We all have what we believe and it comes out through our writings. This Capitalization of the W in word is a translational bias that does not exist in the Greek. They believe the word refers to a person, a being, so they capitalize the W in John 1.1, and it should not be that way. What this then leads to is John 1.3, reading like this. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, if you believe that the word in John 1.1 is a person, you'll naturally translate verse 3 as him. All things were made by him. But is that the proper way to understand the verses? Well, let's listen to Tim Haig and let's look at the video clip where he talks a little bit about this
1: okay but let me take let me take Jansen's side here and uh and, and just and and say okay, so uh maybe uh you know maybe that's not maybe people were mistaken yeah but the, 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 this uh, jansen commits uh, exegetical suicide because it he starts uh uh John starts his prologue out using the word uh logos or logos word. And when he comes down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's not talking about something different. You can't translate that, it, and it became flesh? No. Well, the fact of the matter is, we come face to face in this very first discussion that we're having here with the mystery that we cannot and should not try to unravel. That from all beginning, before there ever was anything, there was Yeshua, and he had no beginning. He was not created. He is himself the creator, as John himself says. And just like Rob said, you know, he fulfills that very uh, uh, teaching in the Targum, uh, in the Aramaic Targum in, in Onkelos, in the, in the, what does it say at the beginning of Rashid at the beginning of Genesis? In the beginning, the God by the Mamre created the heavens and the earth. Which
0: in Neophyte, now of course with the Targums, granted yeah. it's hard to date because we yeah. have
1: sure. different manuscripts and right. they vary from one another. But uh there is the Neafidi that says uh it says the sun uh it says bara bara created. Right. <laughs> right. So you have so, you, you have a tradition where they're kind of going back and forth between word and right. sun mamre, by the way, as uh, as Rob indicated in the in the Aramaic is means word. Okay, and so yeah.
0: So what's my comments on this? Um have I committed what Tim had, calls, he says, Jansen commits exegetical suicide. But what we need to do is look at the passage. And once again, we want to look at it with an open mind and an open heart, and we want to try to understand, Matthew wants to try to understand, hopefully you do too, how did John, what did John, when he wrote this, what did he intend to portray to his initial hearers? That's what we want to get. Um, I've spent a lot of time on this, Does't mean that I'm right, but I ask you to consider what I have to share first off, the section that they choose to deal with right here, and that was it. that's all they chose to dealt with on John one one and verse fourteen that short. They do deal with something in John one eighteen, which I won't get into in this sermon, but that section that they dealt with is from page forty two of my book. However, I have an entire chapter in that same book, chapter four, in that same book on John chapter 1. And that chapter is about eight and a half pages long. And they don't mention it here, even though in that chapter we go into much, much more detail. Detail that I'm going to attempt to get into in this lesson. So, can we translate verse 14 of John 1 as it?
1: Should we read,
0: It became flesh rather than the Word became flesh? Well, I do not have a problem with reading the word became flesh but you must properly define the word logos here in order to understand what verse 14 is saying a literal translation of John 1 14 is the word became flesh not it became flesh okay but we have to understand what is the word what is the logos interestingly enough some English translations of the Bible translated from the Greek New Testament that preceded the 1611 King James Version, read like this, John 1, verses 3 through 4, All things were made by it, and without it was made nothing that was made. In it was life, and the life was the light of men. Now what I just read is actually a direct quote from the 1534 William Tyndale translation of John's Gospel. 1534 obviously comes before 1611. You'll find the same reading or a very similar reading with the word it in the 1537 Matthew's Bible, the 1539 Great Bible, the 1560 Geneva Bible, and the 1568 Bishop's Bible. They'll all say basically all things were made by it and without it was made nothing that was made in those English Bibles. When you translate John 1-3 from the Greek as it, as these early English Bibles did, what that does is it pushes you in the direction of the Word in John 1.1 being just that, the spoken Word, rather than a separate person other than Yahweh, the Father. Now, it is certainly acceptable to translate John 1.3 as all things were made by it. We learn this not just from the English translations like Tyndale and Geneva, but we also learn it from the simple Greek word, autu. Even the King James Version translates this same word, autu, as it, in John 1 5, just two verses later, when it says, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it, autu, not. Same word, KJV translates it as it, here in John 1 5. So it's acceptable, even in the King James Version, to do thus. Translating autu as Him is certainly not wrong or bad. It's not incorrect to translate out to as Him. Many times it is translated Him in our English Bibles. It all depends on the subject. Here in John 1, it all depends on whether you view the Word in John 1.1 as a person or as the spoken word. That's what it depends on. So I have to ask this question. It seems simple, but it's very important in this lesson. How did the creation come into being? We know that Yahweh is the Creator. That's a fact that no one who believes the Bible is going to argue with. How did Yahweh cause creation to come into existence? It's very simple. Genesis 1, 1 through 3 reads like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now, if you pick up your Bible, and you're reading your Bible beginning in Genesis, and you read these verses to start off, Genesis 1, 1 through 3, I think it's safe to say that you will see from this one person creating and one person speaking. Now, this is not to say that as you continue reading, your understanding will not grow fuller. As we continue to read through the scriptures, our understanding will grow. It will become more full. But any later material that you read will not contradict previous material that you have already read. You see what I'm saying? So here in Genesis 1, God or Elohim spoke light into existence. If you keep reading through Genesis 1, you'll see the phrase Elohim said, Elohim said, let the waters bring forth. Elohim said, let this happen and then it was done, and it was good. Now, as you continue in your Bible reading, and you get past Genesis, you eventually get to the book of Psalms. And I want you to notice how the psalmist David describes creation in Psalm 33, 6 through 9.
1: It says this,
0: The heavens were made by the word of Yahweh. Now, I want you to ask yourself, when you read that, the heavens were made by the word of Yahweh, is that word of Yahweh a separate person from Yahweh? Ask yourself that question. Continuing on in verse 6, "...and all the stars by the breath of His mouth, He gathers the waters of the sea into a heap, He puts the depths into storehouses, let the whole earth tremble before Yahweh, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him." Verse 9, "...for He spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. So the heavens, the stars, and everything else were made by the word of Yahweh. Perfectly lines up with Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, Elohim said, let there be light. You might venture your mind now to John 1 again. In the beginning
1: was the word.
0: Yahweh commanded and existence took place. And Psalm 33, verse 6, in the Septuagint, actually uses the Greek word logos. The heavens were made by the logos, the word of Yahweh. Same Greek word as John 1. So Yahweh's Word was like a master builder by His side, but not in the sense of a separate person. It was the Word of Yahweh that was said to be with God in the beginning in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. John 1.1a and b. Now today, we don't normally speak of our Word as something that's with us. But the Hebrews did speak in this way. And it's okay to speak this way now. It's just not our English verbiage or our lingo that we use today. I want you to consider a couple texts from the Old Testament book of Job as we continue to read through the Bible here. The first one is Job 10.13 and it says this. Job speaks of Yahweh and he says, And these things hast thou hidden thine heart. I know that this is with thee. Job here speaks of Yahweh as having plans hid in his heart. And then he says these things are... With thee, with you, Yahweh. Job twenty-three, fourteen. For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Job again here speaks of Yahweh performing that which he has appointed, his plans. And Job then says that these plans, or these things that Yahweh hath appointed, are with him. Now in your studies you might also want to consider, along with these verses, Genesis seventeen four, and Job 12, 12 through 13. These texts speak of concepts or plans being with people. Always remember, always remember this. Words that come out of a person's mouth always originated as a thought or a concept prior to being a word. Words are a product of your thoughts or plans. You think about it before you say it. We should also note the personification of wisdom being with Yahweh in the beginning as well. In the Bible we see that wisdom and understanding is where the logos or the word begins, with Yahweh and also with human beings. Now what do I mean when I say personification of wisdom? Well, personification is defined by Noah Webster in his 1828 dictionary as this. Quote, from personify, the giving to an inanimate being, the figure or the sentiments and language of a rational being. A couple of examples is like if we would say, the moon looked down upon us tonight. We speak of the moon as though it has eyes and it's looking down upon us even though it's an inanimate object. It's not a human being. It's not rational. It doesn't speak, think, or talk. We might say the stars sang in the dark black night because they shine so brightly and we refer to the stars as singing. That's personification, attributing a human characteristic to something that is inanimate or non-human. There are some examples of this in Scripture and there are way too many to go all over but there's a couple of them i put in my notes in Psalms. Psalm 77, 16, which is a reference to the parting of the Red Sea during the Exodus, says this, The waters saw thee, O Elohim. The waters saw thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. Here the psalmist speaks of the waters of the Red Sea as though they could see Yahweh and be afraid of what he was about to do through Prophet Moses parting the sea. Psalm 85, verse 10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Well, righteousness and peace are not a husband and wife kissing. But this is personification. It's talking about righteousness and peace coming together, embracing in one. Now, I want you to notice how the wisdom of Yahweh is spoken about in Proverbs 8, verse 1. Proverbs 8, 1 says this, Doth wisdom cry, and understanding cry? put forth her voice? Now, I want you to notice right off that wisdom here is portrayed as a her, a female. But is wisdom a female that's standing right there in front of the author of Proverbs, crying out and putting forth her voice? Is Solomon talking about a human woman beside him right here? I don't think that's the case. I think Solomon is using the art, the literary art of personification He's giving an inanimate thing, wisdom, the figure of a rational human being. So therefore he says wisdom cries out. Doth wisdom cry? That she put forth her voice. But why a she? Why does he use the feminine here? Well, here's my understanding of this. My take. In Proverbs, this is Proverbs 8, one. In the book of Proverbs, before you get to chapter 8, in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, the author is warning men of seductive harlots or adulterous women. When you study this, you should read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and then move into Proverbs 8 because the author in 5, 6, and 7, he constantly says things like this. Her feet go down to death. Don't go near the door of her house. An adulteress goes after your very life. He warns you about the adulterous woman in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Well, here in Proverbs 8, the author contrasts the adulterous woman in 5, 6, and 7 with the woman that us men of Israel are to pursue, and that is Lady Wisdom, who is referred to in the feminine as a she, I believe, in contrast to who we're not to pursue in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. It's not an actual lady per se, but wisdom personified as a she. Now, I want to continue reading some further verses in Proverbs 8 about wisdom. Because after verse 1, if you continue to read down, starting at verse 22 in Proverbs 8, you see the the author speak about wisdom in a very high, lofty manner. Listen to what he says. Yahweh possessed me, that's wisdom, verse 1, in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there was no depths, I was brought forth when there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet He had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when He prepared the heavens, I was there. When He set a compass upon the face of the depth, when He established the clouds above, when He strengthened the fountains of the deep, when He gave to the sea His decree that the water should not pass His commandment, when He appointed the foundations of the earth then I was by him as one brought up with him and I was daily his delight rejoicing always before him now what we see in proverbs 8 is a deep personification of lady wisdom notice what proverbs 8:12 before this says about wisdom same chapter it says i wisdom dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions Now, is wisdom here an actual woman that lives with another woman named prudence? I, wisdom, dwell or live with prudence. No. I think most of us can see that. It's two attributes being personified. Usually, when a man has wisdom, he's also a man that has prudence. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. We have two attributes personified in one verse. But the language of Proverbs 8 is so personal that it has led many of the early church fathers, as they're called in the first centuries A.D., to conclude that Proverbs 8 is actually talking about Yeshua as a pre-existing spirit being that was with Father Yahweh. If you ever are in your pajamas on Saturday morning and you hear a knock on the door, there is a probably 50 to 60 percent chance that it might be a Jehovah's Witness. One came to my door this past week, Friday morning, Well, if you ask Jehovah's Witnesses, who are not Trinitarians, but they are Arians in their Christology, they believe that Jesus, as they call him, pre-existed his human life. But they believe that Yahweh, or Jehovah, created Jesus before he created everything else. One of the passages they would go to, to try to prove that, would be Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, verse 30, they might quote the New American Standard Bible where it says, Then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. The personification is so deep of wisdom and knowledge and understanding in Proverbs 8 that it has led many throughout church history to believe that Proverbs 8 is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, as they say. I don't take that position. But I want you to listen to me carefully here. I think you'll get this. I believe we're all smarter than we make ourselves out to be, and we can learn deeper thoughts than sometimes we challenge our brains to learn. Listen to me carefully. I actually believe Proverbs 8 is, in a way, a reference to the Messiah, but not to Yeshua as a person. Rather, it was the Word, the wisdom, the plan, the understanding, and the knowledge of Yahweh that would eventually become flesh in the person of the Messiah. Now, let me illustrate this in a way that might be easier to understand. This is how I teach it to my children. Suppose I tell my son David, do you see that Dodge Caravan Daddy drives every day? David, at one time, that van existed in the mind of its designer. Now, David might scratch his little head And think, Daddy, how in the world did that van fit into a man's mind? Well, the problem would be that David is equating what the van is now with what the van was then. But they aren't one and the same. What the van was then in the designer's mind was a plan that was with the designer. He thought it up, every button, every piece of frame, every seat belt, every light, and then that designer, he talked about it, and eventually he drew it out on paper in a blueprint. Well, the intellect and the wisdom of the designer developed the van into a blueprint, and eventually that plan, that intellect, and that wisdom in the designer's mind that was with the designer took on the shape and the actuality of a van to drive down the road. The plan, the blueprints, became reality. I've used Brother Jerry Kendall to illustrate this in witnessing about this passage of Scripture. Brother Jerry Kendall has got a lot of years under his belt in carpentry. He's a good carpenter. And if he builds something for you, it's going to be quality. Okay. Now, after... Brother Jerry Kendall, let's say he wants you to you want him to build you a barn or something, a little ten by ten shed a barn. And he says, Okay, and you agree on it, and he comes out there and he builds that barn. And he gets through and he, he brings me out there. I'm the one that wants the barn to be built, and he brings me out there and he's excited because of his craftsmanship and he's taken a lot of time and he's built that barn for Brother Matthew. And I walk into that barn, I open the door and I walk into that barn and I look around and I say, whew. This is you, Brother Jerry Kendall. This is it. I can see your craftsmanship here. Well, that doesn't mean that the building that Brother Jerry built is a one-to-one equation with Brother Jerry. But it's the reality of his skill, his wisdom, his plans, and his thoughts made into a barn. That's how I illustrate it to help people maybe understand. What the plan became in that case and in the case of the van is not a one-to-one correspondence to what the plan once was. Just as the van existed in the mind of its designer, Yeshua existed in the mind of Yahweh, and thus was with Yahweh in the beginning, but not as a separate person, rather as the Logos, the Word, the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding, the plan. Yeshua of Nazareth is what the wisdom, understanding, plan, and word of Yahweh became. In John chapter 1, Yeshua actually doesn't come on the scene until verse 14, where it says, and the word, the logos, word, plan, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, became flesh. It wasn't Yeshua the person that existed with Yahweh as a finished product, so to speak, but as a plan that would eventually take on reality. Now, this makes sense, and this is why John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the logos. The word, the plan, the forethought, the mind, the wisdom, the understanding of Yahweh, that, according to Proverbs 8, was like a master worker at his side. Not a separate person, but was there spoken about, personified as though it was with him. And Yahweh created the world, how? By his wisdom. If you'll notice in the clip earlier that we showed from Torah Resource Radio, they mentioned Aramaic Targums. An Aramaic Targum is a paraphrase of the Hebrew Bible that was written anciently by people who spoke and wrote Aramaic. A lot of times when you read the Aramaic targums, or the explanations of the Hebrew Scriptures, they'll give you more insight and they'll develop your understanding on what the original meaning of the Old Testament was. Well, in Genesis 1 verse 1, Rob is actually incorrect and you don't have to take my word for it, but Targum Neophiti that he mentions is an Aramaic Targum, and there's been other people that have made this mistake. That Targum does not say, the son created, or like uh, another pastor once said, the firstborn created. It doesn't say anything like that. What it actually says, and you don't have to take my word for it, you can study what the scholars who speak and read and write Aramaic say, is actually it says, the Lord by wisdom created the heavens and the earth, the Lord by His word, or the word of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord, not a separate person, not a separate person. Notice that John one one, a here on the screen, does not say, "In the beginning was the Son." The Greek word for Son is Huios. Doesn't say that. Notice that John one one does not say, "In the beginning was Yeshua." Doesn't say that either. No, Yeshua as a person does not arrive on the scene until verse 14 when the logos, which can accurately be understood as an it, becomes flesh. Now there's a professor of the exegesis of Holy Scripture at the University of Oxford in England and he states it like this in one of his books called New Testament Theology. This is how he paraphrases John 1.1 and verse 14. His name is G.B. Card. I believe he's dead now. In the beginning was the purpose, the purpose in the mind of God, the purpose which was God's own being. This purpose took on human form in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I believe that this is the best way to understand John 1 based upon the grammar that's used. God himself did not become flesh, but what God said or God's thoughts and plans and wisdom and understanding did become flesh. In other words, God the Father didn't become flesh, but what God the Father planned and said became flesh. That's John 1, 1 through 14. So, is it exegetical suicide, as I was accused of at the beginning, to understand John 1, 14 as an it becoming flesh? No. I was in a debate one time, and my debate opponent said, what about verse 14, where the Word becomes flesh? Surely you're not going to say that's an it. Well, I actually am going to say that that is an it. Because the word in verse 14 is no different than the word in verse 1. And it's not a person. It's Yahweh's spoken word. God said, by the word of Yahweh the heavens were made. Wisdom was there with Him in the beginning. All of that became flesh in the person of Yeshua. I like to explain it also as the Torah. Because we know that the Torah, the law of Yahweh, is the wisdom of Yahweh. It is the knowledge of Yahweh placed down into law form. And I have no problem understanding John 1.14 as the Torah becoming flesh. Yeshua, when he walked, is the visible manifestation of the knowledge of Yahweh that he wrote down or had written down, inspired in his law. And that's why he perfectly observed the law, never sinning against it one time. So I don't think that it's exegetical suicide, whatever that means, to understand the word as an it in verse 14. The translation, the Word became flesh, is perfect. It's beautiful. I've got no problem with that. But the Word is not a person, but rather a plan, a thought, wisdom, understanding, a purpose, like G.B. Card says. It takes on human form in Yeshua of Nazareth. So I believe that John 1.1 is best understood like this. In the beginning was the plan, the wisdom, the Word. The plan, the wisdom, the Word was with God, than theon in Greek, and the plan, the wisdom, the word, was divine. Theos in Greek. Now, this is how James Moffat in 1922, and also Smith and Goodspeed in 1939, translated John 1:1c, and the word was divine. Now, as I close, let me briefly comment on the difference between John 1:1b and John 1:1c as it relates to the word God. Most people are used to hearing this verse as this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how it's going to read in most of your English translations. Now, I'm up here tonight telling you that is not the best way to translate that verse. I understand I'm against a ton of theologians. Not all of them, mind you. I didn't just make this up in my bedroom last night, trust me. There are many other theologians that agree with what I'm about to say, but I'm in the minority and not the majority here. I believe that it's best to translate John 1-1c and the Word was divine, not and the Word was God. When you translate it and the Word was God, you come away with a meaning that the God in John 1-1b and the Word was with God is the same as John 1-1c and the Word was God. And I can see how you come away with that thought in the English translation of the Bible like KJV or HCSB. So, most translations will have the word was with God and the word was God. From a Greek grammar point of view, that's not the most accurate way to translate the verse. This is why. This is because John 1 1b, the Greek has tantheon. The planned wisdom word was with God, tantheon. Tantheon literally in Greek means the God. And it's used as a noun when it's written this way. All through the New Testament, you'll see this or other variant forms of theon with an article before it, and it's used as a noun when it's written like this. John 1.1c's use of theos, not Theon, but theos, which is different than Theon, shows that the Greek word theos is what's called qualitative, or it's used somewhat in an adjectival sense. Basically put, we could say that God in John 1c is an adjective, not a noun. God in John 1.1b is a noun, not an adjective. It's like me pointing to Brother Geary, and I could speak about Brother Geary in two ways. Let's say I was talking to Brother John about Brother Geary. I was saying, you know, there's this brother that's come down for Sabbath and New Moon. He's from Tennessee. And John says, well, who are you talking about? And I say, well, Brother Geary is the man that I'm talking about. Well, when I say Brother Geary is the man that I'm talking about, I identify him Using a noun. He's the man. He's the person I'm talking about. However, I could also describe Brother Geary as man. What he is. What is Brother Geary? He is a man. That's using the word man as a noun. That's using the word man as an adjective. The difference is even more striking in Greek when you understand it. John 1.1c's use of theos is what's called indefinite or qualitative. It's an adjective. It does not have the force of a noun. John 1.1b's use of Theon is most certainly definite. It's a noun talking about the person of God the Father or Yahweh the Father. So I want to encourage you here in this. Never let anyone just quote John 1.1 1, 1 to you from the King James Version English or any English translation and think that they can make their point by that. The Greek does not read the same in 1.1c as it does in 1-1-B. And there's a reason for that, and we should not just overlook it. And the word was divine is a good translation. And the word was godlike is a good translation. And let me say this, and I ask you to do research before you balk at this, because the Jehovah's Witness Bible has went under a lot of persecution for translating John 1-1-C like this, but they're actually more accurate than most English translations when they say, and the word was a God. That is actually more accurate than the King James or the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And it's because the word theos in 1.1c is adjectival. It's used to describe the word. It's not a noun. So the word was divine, I think, is probably the best way to put it. Because it was Yahweh's word, it was his plan, it was his wisdom, therefore it was divine, being from Yahweh. It had the quality of divineness, and thus the adjective theos in John one c describes the logos beautifully. Now, if you'd like to study that in John 1.1, 1, 1, further and in more depth, I would recommend reading chapter 11 in this book up here on the screen called Truth in Translation, Accuracy and Bias in English Translations of the New Testament by Jason David Bedune. He's a Greek scholar at the University of Arizona, and he can explain in much more detail what I've briefly tried to explain here about John 1.1. 1, 1. So hopefully you've learned some things tonight. Um, I know that I did in putting this lesson together, and I know that I have a lot more yet to learn as I get more into our Father's Word. So next time I talk about this, I'm not going to talk about this on the new moon. I'm going to teach about something else. But next time I do teach on this, we'll get into a textual variant in John 1, verse 18. These are the kind of things that get me excited. So... We should get excited about Yahweh's word, understanding it and uh not just reading it and then not meditating and concentrating on it. The righteous man meditates on it what? Day and night. Day and night. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Almighty Yahweh, thank you again for another opportunity to teach your word. I love you, I love your word, and I love your son. Father Yahweh Continue to help me and my understanding of Your Word specifically in John chapter 1. Um, I think that it can never be exhausted enough and we should get into it every day, part of Your Word every day. Um, Father, I pray that this message would um, not fall on deaf ears tonight. I pray, Father Yahweh, that people would go back and do their own study um, and not believe me just because I said it but do their own research and their own study and look at all the materials and angles and because there's so many angles to look at it from and I pray that uh, that uh, Father Yahweh you bless them in their endeavors and continue to bless me as I study and seek you through prayer uh, Father Yahweh you said that if we ask we shall receive if we knock, the door will be open. If we seek, we'll find. And you're talking about the spiritual, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Father Yahweh, I, I ask you for more wisdom and understanding and knowledge in your word. Thank you for that which you've given me so far, and I pray that it would never stop. I thank you for your son. I thank you for what the word became, Yeshua of Nazareth, the only begotten of the Father. It's through him I pray.